Welcome to The Chris Rawl Show. You can find me on Twitter, at Chris Rawl. You can find me on Facebook, under The Chris Rawl Show. And you can see all of my work at the website, www.chrisrawl.com. Need to contact me for any reason, you can email me at chris at ceo.com. On today's episode, a thought exercise about the ways narrative is shaped in the NFL playoffs. Today, we will be conducting an exercise in thought. You thought you were going to come to this episode and just be able to glob out and let your brain deteriorate. That's not the case. Today, it will be a day for mental gymnastics. And out of the gate, I want to give you a few things that I personally believe that will set the stage for a discussion about narratives and a discussion about logic through the prism of my mind. Okay, so these are a few things that I believe about the NFL. Number one. There are a reasonable amount of teams, let's just say roughly eight or so in any given year, that can win the Super Bowl. Okay, that's something that I believe, and I feel like that is reflected in every single NFL season. Number two, when you distill it down to that select group of teams, they still make a reasonable amount of mistakes in a variety of ways. That could be team building, that could be coaching, that could be quarterback play, that could be defense. That could be special teams. That could be offensive line play. Go on, go on, go on. The point is, even amongst this select group of teams that I believe are true Super Bowl contenders, you will still see a large amount of mistakes made. So we've established those two things, and I think that most people, actually I think pretty much everybody would agree with those two ideas, which then leads us into what I want to pick at and what I want our thought exercises for the day to be about. Because when one team is eliminated and one team moves on in the playoffs, the common course of discussion follows this particular path. The winning team, celebration, everybody heaps praise on them, and we list the easy-to-identify reasons that they are better than the fallen opposition. Pluck things from that list that I mentioned earlier. Winning teams moving on and you go, well, obviously, their coach was so much better in this game or their special teams just decimated the opposition or they constructed such a solid roster through their front office that they overwhelmed the opposition with talent. And again, those things always exist for this select group of Super Bowl contenders. You can always find a wide variety of reasons why they are where they are. So while this celebration is going on, we take it to the opposite extreme for the losing team. It's... Let's crucify this team and let's pluck the reasons from the prior list that show why this team never had it in them, why they are the losers, because their quarterback was so much worse or because their team building, it just failed them or their offensive line had a terrible game and they're just not as good as they need to be to win a Super Bowl. This is the common course of discussion in the playoffs. Every single week, if you follow it, it happens during the regular season, surprisingly, and especially as we get down into crunch time. But once the playoff starts and the games are played, the entire week of discussion following the wildcard round, the divisional round, now we're into the conference title round, into the Super Bowl, it will always follow this particular path. And sometimes this is valid. Go back to the wildcard round and I'd pluck a game like the Chiefs against the Steelers. And it's really easy to determine the differences between those teams. The main one being the Chiefs are on the list of eight teams I think could win the Super Bowl and the Steelers were not. 
But if you wanted to find particular reasons, you could easily do so going into that game and especially coming out of that to show why the Chiefs were definitely a better football team because they had Patrick Mahomes and the Steelers had Ben Roethlisberger. And that's a really big discrepancy in an important position. And the Chiefs offense is just dynamic and knows what they're doing. And they have a play caller who knows what he's doing. And the Steelers just don't really have that. Again, I could go down the list, but you understand the concept. And you understand when that particular concept makes sense. Now, the further along in the playoffs we get, the less valid this way of thinking becomes. The less it resonates with me. Because of what separates teams. Virtually nothing. Something I've talked about even going back to the regular season. Examinations of the margins that I continually do, including through the wild card round, and especially earlier this week on Tuesday's show about the divisional round, which four games that came down to the final play of the game. That's when it was decided. And I've noticed this week that the common course of discussion, it follows the path that I've laid out over the first five minutes of this episode. Because you go to Fox, you go to ESPN, you go to whatever your media outlet of choice is, and half of the coverage is praise for the teams that have moved on, and rightfully so, and half is let's piss upon these teams who have lost the various failings of the Titans and the Packers and the Bucks and the Bills. And don't get me wrong, those things definitely exist. There are reasons that those teams lost. Titans, they had their quarterback meltdown at the wrong time, and Tannehill threw three horrible picks. The Packers had the worst special teams all season long, and they put together by DVOA, one of my favorite metrics, the worst individual game performance on special teams of the entire season. Not just for the Packers, for literally any team in football this entire season. The Bucks picked the wrong time to have Tristan Wirfs go out at right tackle, and the rest of their offensive line, they played their worst game of the season. They were overwhelmed by Von Miller and Aaron Donald and that Rams defensive front, and it really got Brady jittery and forced him into a pretty atrocious game. And the Bills, they were a sliver away from advancing, and a couple of tactical errors right at the end of the game, that ended up being the difference between them winning and losing. So all these teams have failings, and we knew them going in. I talked about the Packers special teams every single week this season. Uh, where I get lost and where the common talking points really start to alienate me is when I understand that either the same failings or similar flaws exist on the teams that remain. All of these teams fall into the category that I said. Uh, these are eight teams that can all win the Super Bowl. Just because one advanced and one didn't, it doesn't become this enormous referendum on whether this team is just atrocious and they'll never win or whether this quarterback can't hack it in the playoffs. And it also doesn't mean on the winning side that this is complete confirmation of everything and you did things perfectly. They all come from a similar place. So when you understand that, that all of these teams within this select category of Super Bowl contenders, that all these teams are very close to one another in talent and execution, how can the narratives that emerge be so different depending upon the outcome of a tight game? In the divisional round, those are four games that are decided on the final play. So we're going to do two thought exercises because I like to think about this and I want more sports fans to just think about it. I'm not saying they will arrive at the same destination as I, 
and I actually don't think it would be cool if everybody did. I like people coming from different frames of mind. I like the discussion about differing viewpoints and why you believe this versus why I believe this. But I think examining the pathway of how we got to where we are and what we think in present day and how easily that can be swayed by one tiny play or one tiny thing, I think it merits a good amount of thought. So the first exercise, we're gonna do two. And the first one is a pretty simple question. What do you think about the San Francisco 49ers? Now, two seasons ago, the San Francisco 49ers led by two scores in the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl. They were a hair away from winning that game. Last year, they're decimated by injuries. They come back this year. And in the offseason, they execute the blockbuster trade for Trey Lance. Trade up in the draft. They trade away three first-round picks, including the number 12 pick in this year's draft and a third-round selection. Huge haul. Traded up to get their quarterback because the Niners, like a lot of people, say uh, it's pretty hard to win a Super Bowl with Jimmy Garoppolo as your starter. And so we think with this roster, with this coaching staff, if we get in a quarterback who can be a star, we think we could be the best team in football. And if I'm being fair, this trade, if you believe in the talents of Lance, is really not that controversial. Because I believe what the Niners believed about themselves, <laughs> that they're set up for success virtually everywhere else besides the quarterback position. Their D-line, one of the very best in football. They have been an absolute menace in the Dallas game and the Green Bay game in the playoffs. Fred Warner, maybe the best middle linebacker in football. They got playmakers all over on offense, whether that's Brandon Ayuk or Debo Samuel or George Kittle. And they have Kyle Shanahan and his run game, which can manufacture yards out of thin air for literally any running back in the history of football. Right now, it's Elijah Mitchell. Before, it was Raheem Mostert. Go down the list of anybody who's ever been in his system. Devontae Freeman, Tevin Coleman, go back to his Washington days. You can find tailbacks who found great success the best of their career because of the way that Kyle Shanahan schemes up his run game. So it makes sense. But so far, this blockbuster trade for Trey Lance, just as an individual move, so far it's been a complete whiff. Trey Lance does not look ready to start a football game anytime soon when he was forced into action with Garoppolo being injured. He looked like a newborn colt. He looked like a guy who had played one season at North Dakota State and wasn't asked to throw the ball a lot and is still learning the position. He has physical raw tools, especially when it comes to running. His arm has talent, but he doesn't know how to throw all the passes. He doesn't know how to read a field because he's young and inexperienced. So all that stuff makes sense. Maybe he grows. And maybe what we think now is a whiff turns out to be an incredible boost to their future. This stuff can change. However, right now, it looks like a whiff. When you're looking at the Niners as a team with a finite contender window that is right now, you can make a case that that move is especially egregious when you consider who they could have had simply at the number 12 slot this year and kept these additional first-rounders and third-round draft choice. Because available right at that slot and right after that slot, Micah Parsons, all-pro defender on the short list of contenders for Defensive Player of the Year. Not Defensive Rookie of the Year, Defensive Player of the Year. He's been an incredible force for the Cowboys. Right after him, Rashawn Slater selected to the Pro Bowl at left tackle for the Chargers. 
considered by people who understand offensive line play much better than I to be one of the five best left tackles in football this year for Justin Herbert and the Chargers. So you see, you could already have infused this team with talent, this team that has had to rely upon Jimmy Garoppolo and all of these other great pieces and is now in the conference title game. So nobody is going to care if they win. That's how it works. You don't care. Nobody cares. You shouldn't care. If you're the fan of the team, if you are the team, you you never care. You never make excuses for anything if you win a championship. It's the great thing about making mistakes. Either possible mistakes, like we're seeing with the Lance one, or fully realized. All of them evaporate with a championship. But I think it's interesting to point out as we get the ball rolling on our thoughts about the Niners and how they have, if they have, how they have evolved over the course of this season. Because this was a common talking point, especially the first three quarters of the season. Oh man, how did they trade this haul of picks for somebody who is most definitely not ready to start for this football team? Who doesn't give them a better chance to win right now than Jimmy Garoppolo? So that's hovering over their head. And we move into the final stretch of the regular season, the final five games. And the Niners need to win. It ends up being for their last five to make the playoffs. This is where I want to make a pause before we get into those final five games. And I would say, think back to what you thought about the 49ers at this time when they were hovering outside the playoff picture. What did you think of them at this time? What were the common thoughts in your mind? Were you thinking about this Trey Lance trade? Were you thinking about Jimmy Garoppolo and how bad he is? Were you thinking about they just have a good roster, but for whatever reason they can't? Put it together, were you thinking about how Kyle Shanahan's record as a head coach has never matched up with the way that people talk about him? Could be any of these things. You could have thought, this is a very dangerous team, but it seems like they're probably not going to make the playoffs this year. So that's another whiff on their part. Man, they're probably going to rue the day that they threw away a bunch of picks for Trey Lance. So this is where the improbability of the Niners' run for this particular season begins. They end up winning four out of their final five games of the regular season to get into the playoffs. There are three in particular that I want to reference for just sliding doors type moments and how drastically what we think right now about the Niners, which I'll tell you right now, I think the Niners are an incredible team. I think they are capable of winning the Super Bowl, much like I felt two years ago when they were making their run. I think they're right in that same exact boat. Their defense, and especially their defensive line, is terrifying. The Shanahan run game getting the ball in the hands of Debo and Kittle and Ayuk. That's a scary proposition. However, going back to these final games of the regular season, there are three in particular that I want to point out. First one is they beat the Cincinnati Bengals in overtime in Cincinnati. Crazy game, back and forth. Bengals and Burrow, they throw two touchdown passes in the fourth quarter to Jamar Chase to end up getting it to overtime, but... This game is every bit of the Jimmy Garoppolo experience. A dude who you can technically win a Super Bowl with, a guy who it's going to be harder to win a Super Bowl with than the stars of the league because he is significantly more flawed. In this game, it's tied up. There are 24 seconds to go, and he throws it directly to a Bengals defender. I'm watching this game. Uh, I bet the Bengals in it. And I'm jumping off my couch because I think it's going to be returned for a game-winning pick six with 20 seconds to go. Instead, defender completely drops it. Very next play, great pass from Garoppolo. Hits George Kittle for 19 yards on third and 10 to set up 
a potential game-winning field goal. All these sliding doors, margin-style moments. As he would have it, Robbie Gould, the guy who has never missed a kick in the playoffs, he misses a field goal as time expires that would have won the game. Oh no, now the Niners are clutching their heads, potentially lose this game, now they're not going to the playoffs, and what do we think of the Niners if that happens? Instead, Bengals get the ball first, go down, kick a field goal. Niners either have to kick a field goal to extend the game. Instead, they win on a great Brandon Ayuk touchdown. Move on. Still alive for the playoff berth that they're lusting after. The second game I want to discuss is the Tennessee Titans game. It was on a Thursday night, and this is where the number one narrative about Jimmy Garoppolo, it reared its ugly head because the Niners dominate the first half. They're up 10-0. They should have been up by 30. I bet on the Niners in this game, so now I'm on the opposite side, and I'm partially going, all right, this is fine. However, they should be up by three possessions. And instead, he throws two game-changing interceptions that were just absolutely atrocious. They will turn your blood cold as a football fan, as a Niners fan, or as a better on the San Francisco 49ers. And in this game, those two interceptions end up being huge. They're separators. Randy Bullock kicks a field goal at the buzzer. That's the game. Sliding door-style stuff. The narrative all week long, into Sunday and into the next Sunday, because the Niners now have 10 days off. This is just why you cannot win with Jimmy Garoppolo. Look at this. Like, these two passes, they are atrocious. They are back-breaking. They will hamstring you at the most inopportune times. You cannot win with this guy. So we're seeing the bouncing narratives, bouncing narratives, dependent upon just these slim margin-style plays. Final, Final game of the regular season. Niners have to win to get into the playoffs. They're playing at Los Angeles Rams, and the Rams have stuff to play for, seeding purposes. If they win, they're the two seed. If they don't, they drop to the four spot. And the Rams are up 17-0 in that game. They have the ball with one minute left in the first half. Stafford sacked. Niners get a field goal. Long story short, you see play after play after play that it comes down to that the Niners either execute or for whatever reason, it just it goes their way including down seven with 157 left on the clock in regulation. The Niners punt. So they're trusting that their defense can hold. They have three timeouts so they can use them, but their defense has to hold, just period, in order to even get a chance for Jimmy Garoppolo to drive the length of the field with no timeouts to score a touchdown. Seems like such an improbable proposition that while Kyle Shannon was doing it, it's fourth and I want to say 18, it's long, but I'm going, I don't, th- I mean, you just, you can't really punt here. Just throw it and hope you get a PI or something. I don't know. It just seems like the odds of you executing a three and out, getting the ball back, and then having to rely upon Garoppolo to drive down the field with no timeouts, it seems so improbable. This is the same guy that a couple weeks earlier, everybody on planet Earth agreed, you just can't win with this guy. He's not cut out for it. Instead, the defense holds. Sean McVay. Very conservative, three straight runs. He's content punting the ball because he also doesn't believe that Garoppolo is going to do that. Niners get the ball back at their own 12 with a minute 27 to go, no timeouts. They have to go and score in order to extend their playoff hopes. And they do. Juwan Jennings, touchdown, 26 seconds to go, sends the game to overtime. Niners win in there. So think about all of these things. Think about the improbability just to get into the playoffs. We've ridden the roller coaster up and down and up and down and up and down. At certain points, we think the Niners are scary. They could do some damage. At certain points, we're going, I hope my team gets to play them in the playoffs because they got Garoppolo and they just aren't very good. 
And at certain points, we're going, is Kyle Shanahan a good coach? Is he not? We're riding the roller coaster every single week, every single week. You tune on ESPN, and depending on what happened on the prior week's game, these are the talking points that you're getting shoved down your throat. Going to the playoffs, they beat the Dallas Cowboys. It's a win where you say, thank God that we are going against Mike McCarthy on the opposite end. Thank God that nursing a lead in the fourth quarter, George Kittle makes what looks like a catch and then fumbles the ball and the Cowboys recover. Then it goes to replay and it barely touches the ground, so now it's not a catch and the fumble is retroactively taken away. It's a game where you say, thank God that Jimmy Garoppolo only had only had the one atrocious interception, which you can get by if he does that, as evidenced by their next game against Green Bay. Uh, and then you say, thank God that the Cowboys chose the end of the game to run a quarterback sneak with 14 seconds to go and no timeouts when they're in position to take some shots at the end zone. More time than it took the Kansas City Chiefs to drive virtually the length of the field and kick a field goal against the Bills on Sunday night. Interesting to know. So they move on. Again, a lot of margin stuff goes into this game. And we're still riding the roller coaster, but less so. Now we're going, oh man, well, the Niners are a really good team and their defense is scary as hell. Shanahan knows how to scheme a run game, and that's a pretty good coach. And for all his faults, Garoppolo is now 3-1 and one in the playoffs as a starter. So you can't really ignore that number. And Green Bay on Sunday. As I mentioned earlier, the separation in the game is the Packers special teams by DVOA had the worst individual special teams performance of the entire season. Not for Green Bay, for any team. That's the separator. So now the Niners are advancing. And the narrative on the positive side, it's obviously getting stronger because they're advancing. And they deserve the accolades that they are getting in a lot of areas. Stuff that I mentioned right at the very start. Their defensive line is freaking awesome. Their run game is freaking awesome. Their playmakers on offense, they know what to do. Shanahan, he knows what he's doing. D'Amico Ryans, their defense coordinator, he knows what he's doing. Now, this is where we'll take a pause and for purposes of thought and understanding the way that this sport is covered, here are the questions I'm going to ask. What would be your perception of San Francisco if they had missed the playoffs? About all of these things I've been discussing, what would it be? What would your perception of the Niners be if they had lost to Dallas, if that Kittle fumble had been real and the Cowboys go down and score and they end up winning, or if Dak had thrown to the end zone instead of running quarterback sneak and they win on a miraculous pass. What would your perception of the Niners be if they had lost to Green Bay last Sunday? If that blocked punt did not occur and the Niners finished on three points and Garoppolo threw for 100 yards and one atrocious pick at the end of the first half, what would your thoughts be? And that kind of moves into the quarterback position. And I would say, what is your perception of Jimmy G currently? Now, four and one is a starter in the playoffs. People love the quarterback under center who wins. I'm not one of those people because I think that's a very different thing. Individual performance and team success. But people love saying stuff like that. And so now, if you're abiding by that logic, what do you think about Jimmy Garoppolo? Would anything have changed if 
they hadn't made the playoffs or if they lost in the first round or if they lost against Green Bay. This is what I always want to get to the root of. How drastically narratives can be altered because one team has a special teams meltdown or because Sean McVay gets ultra conservative at the end of the regular season with a chance to close out the Niners or a Bengals defender drops an interception that is right in his chest. This is where I get lost on what is happening on ESPN, on Fox, on the media outlet of your choosing. Because I'm of the opinion that one crazy play should not drastically alter how we talk about a quarterback or a team. If you think Jimmy Garoppolo is good or bad, one play should never really change that. If you think that the San Francisco Niners are good or bad, one play should never really change that. So that leads us into thought exercise number two, the game of the prior weekend. Here's the question that I'll pose. What do you think of the Buffalo Bills and specifically coach Sean McDermott? So McDermott became the Buffalo Bills coach in 2017. He's had an incredibly successful run there. Four playoff appearances in five seasons and two AFC East crowns. I'll make a quick note about those things. In the prior 17 seasons to McDermott's arrival in Buffalo, the Bills made the playoffs zero times. Zero. We're talking about a franchise that had no success whatsoever. And in the five years that Sean McDermott has been coach, immense success relative to the past. This year, going into the playoffs, the Bills have the best point differential in football. Better than any team. They finish with an 11-6 record because there's a lot of tight, margin-separated losses. Whether that was to Tennessee when Josh Allen slips on a quarterback sneak right at the end of the game when it looks like they're going to score the game-winning touchdown. Whether it's that weird defensive struggle against Jacksonville that ends 9-6. Whether it's that New England windstorm Monday night game where Mac Jones throws three times and the elements played such an outsized role you couldn't even take anything from the game, whether it's an overtime loss to the Bucks, where the Bills come storming back in the second half, force overtime, a couple pass interference calls go against Buffalo, and that's the separator. Or week one, they lose to the Steelers. The separating play in that game is a pump block return for touchdown. The, they had one loss this season where it was just a clear outclassing by the opponent against Indianapolis when they beat them 41-15. So we enter the playoffs and... The Bills obliterate New England in the wild card round. Josh Allen is perfect. He is absolutely perfect. You can't play better at the quarterback position than Josh Allen played in that game. More touchdowns than incompletions and in temperatures that were below 10 degrees and everybody said, it's just going to be impossible for you to do pretty much anything through the air. Josh Allen torched him to the ground. So they advance to play Kansas City. They lose an absolute heartbreaker that I spoke to a lot on Tuesday's show. And in that game, Josh Allen is still perfect. Shockingly so. Josh Allen was, he was Superman. Now, arguing about whether or not Josh Allen could do anything more for his team, that is not up for debate. It's just not. You're thankfully not seeing it on any shows this week because even these bozos that love stirring the pot and just throwing out takes to get discussion generated even they understand how special of a performance that was. That Josh Allen's a baller. And this is me predicting down the road, if anybody uses that game retroactively to prove he can't win in the playoffs, I will lose my mind. Because extending this discussion on narratives, this is how it works a lot of the time. What we celebrate in the moment 
if it ends in a loss for the team and then that individual does not have success on a team level for years, let's say we're six years in from now and Josh Allen still hasn't won a Super Bowl because it's freaking hard. And now people start pointing to that record, the thing that we love, love, love doing and going, well, Josh Allen, he's only six and six in the playoffs. And I mean, I just think there's, I just think you can't win with this style. He's too much of a gunslinger and he's running around. I will lose my mind if that occurs. I want to warn everybody in advance. However, in present day, it's a different discussion. Josh Allen is not taking flack and rightfully so. But as we reflect upon narratives and how quickly they change and how I believe it's not really fair nor reasonable. His coach is on the other side of that, Sean McDermott. Boils down to those final 13 seconds of regulation. Buffalo's up three. They're kicking off. Kansas City has timeouts. First error pointed out by Tony Romo in advance. I'm saying the same thing at home. They don't squib it. They don't pop it up. They don't force Kansas City to try and have to return this kick in some capacity, thus wasting time off this clock. Instead, ball at the 25-yard line, still 13 seconds remaining. Second decision, they're guarding the sidelines. They're guarding deep. They give up a free 19-yard completion to Tyreek Hill. Free in every sense of the word. Get it, run as fast as you can, fall down, call timeout. Third air, they run the most flabbergasting coverage you'll ever see on Travis Kelsey to give up a 25-yard completion. They're still guarding the sidelines for reasons unknown, considering Kansas City has timeouts. The corner who's in coverage with Kelsey, he's just shaded completely to the outside. He's giving up the entire middle of the field for free, which Mahomes takes a snap, gets rid of it immediately. 25 yards later, Kelsey goes down, they call a timeout, and Harrison Butker comes in, drills a 49-yarder at the buzzer. Kansas City wins the coin toss. Game, set, match, and overtime. Touchdown, Mahomes to Kelsey. Now, this has led to a discussion about that sequence of events, and, and as it should be. I think it's fascinating to examine these tiny little minutia-style plays that make up wins and losses in the playoffs. That's literally half of the things that I talk about on this show. I, I love it. However, where I'm getting lost this week in the way that this game has been covered, is I've been hearing Sean McDermott getting dragged a lot this week. I've been seeing things pop up, including one yesterday before I'd recorded this show, and the question of the article is, is Sean McDermott holding back Josh Allen? Is this the coach that actually you want wedded to this ascending superstar quarterback? Actually, not ascending. He's, he is a superstar quarterback right now in present day. Now, I find this to be very bizarre because I've never heard any sentiments whatsoever uttered until the Bills had lost on Sunday. I've never heard anybody question Sean McDermott and his coaching. A dude who has a career 58% against the spread record. That is incredible. It's virtually identical to Bill Belichick. That's an incredible against the spread record. Vegas bookmakers, they are so razor sharp on what is going on in the NFL. It's impossible to have nearly a 60% winning percentage. And yet McDermott through five years, that's where he is. As I mentioned before, he raised the Buffalo Bills from the dead, a team that had not made the playoffs in 17 seasons. Now they've made it in four or five years. So on the one hand, do I think that multiple tactical mistakes, tiny as they may seem, were made in the final 13 seconds? Absolutely, yes. I talked about them in detail on Tuesday's show this week. On the other hand, does that change my overarching opinion of Sean McDermott and his coaching ability? Absolutely not. It's the same concept as Matt LaFleur in the NFC title game last year. When he chose with four minutes and change to go, Green Bay's down eight. 
inside the 10-yard line. He chooses to kick a field goal rather than trying to score a touchdown. He mentions after the game, I wish I hadn't done that. I made a mistake. In the same way that Tom Brady makes mistakes all the time in the playoffs. Aaron Rodgers does. Peyton Manning does. Patrick Mahomes does. Josh Allen does. It doesn't matter who the person, who the player is. Mistakes will be made. And if you are on the winning side, it means that players and people or random chance covered up for the errors that you made. So getting into thought and narrative and the way it's strung together and why I like examining it. Let's say that Harrison Butker misses that field goal at the end of regulation. An event that the Bills cannot control if Kansas City blocks correctly and Harrison Butker has the correct height on his kick. Two things that happen the vast majority of the time for all NFL teams unless you're the Green Bay Packers. So let's say those things occur and he pushes it wide right. He missed a field goal early in the game. He missed an extra point early in the game. Very well could have happened. Let's say he misses that. Buffalo's celebrating and they're advancing. And now they would be the presumed Super Bowl favorite. At that point... What would your perception of the Buffalo Bills and Sean McDermott be? And what do you think the talking points this week would be on First Take or Get Up or whatever you choose to watch on ESPN? This is where I get incredibly lost in narratives. This is where I get frustrated by the way they are given life and then can never really die. How drastically altered narrative becomes in the public eye because one play happens. So when you think about this in your own mind and you understand all of these teams are very close to one another in talent and execution. So how can the narratives that emerge be so different depending on the outcome of a tight game? Look back to the divisional round and understand what we have talked about this week for the winning teams and for the losing teams, the separation that occurred in all four games comes down to the final play of the game. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. You can find all of my work at www.chrisrawl.com. Thank you for listening.